Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Deadly bombings in Brussels on March 23rd revealed critical gaps in European counterterrorism efforts. Yet with numerous horrific attacks since 9-11, terrorism in Europe is nothing new. Even as the American approach to fighting violent extremism has undergone one massive restructuring and ongoing evolutions, the European counterterrorism architecture has seen little change, says Eric Rosand, a veteran State Department counterterrorism official who now directs the Prevention Project at the Global Center on Cooperative Security. The, the gaps in the European Union's system, the shortcomings in the European Union architecture are not new. They've, they've long existed. Today, we'll hear from Eric about the gaps in European counterterrorism efforts, why they exist, what needs to change, and how they make it more difficult for U.S. officials to do their job of defending the American homeland. After this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. And now, here is Eric Rosand speaking at a March 25th forum hosted by the Washington Institute. The first point is uh, I very much share uh, Matt's assessment of the two, the two-pronged uh, challenge, because both the counterterrorism challenge and as well as a uh, what he described as a social inclusion challenge. I would frame it uh, slightly differently in terms of a, a near-term counterterrorism challenge and a longer-term prevention challenge. Um, and at the core of the prevention challenge is uh, these issues of social inclusion. And one of the um, main issues that we have to grapple with, and Europe's been grappling with for some time, and we, we, we grapple with the United States, is resources. And um, every single leader will talk about the need to focus on the long term while also focusing on the short term. And not to, um, the goal should be, of course, to take terrorists off the battlefield and the streets, but also to diminish the pool of recruits so that there aren't, for each one you take off the street, there are not 10 more to replace that individual. Unfortunately, the resources allocation never matches that rhetoric. And um, we're guilty of it in the United States um, in terms of, I, I think, uh, until very recently, until the uh, the last budget of this administration, I don't believe there were any dedicated resources for countering violent extremism at home. I think there'll now finally be at uh, budgets in 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 the, in the uh, Department of Justice and Homeland Security budgets for this uh, specific purpose. Um, I think a similar um, I- uh, issue confronts Belgium and other other countries. The resources simply are not being allocated to prevention. So that means the kinds of school, mother schools that you've seen popping up around the world to engage mothers uh, proactively and to allow them to engage uh, their children and their uh, other young people in the community uh, to set up hotlines for uh, mothers to reach out to when they see early signs of radicalization, to uh, train uh, school teachers, to train police. Um, all the rhetoric is there. In fact, the European Union has perhaps the most elaborate uh, radicalization awareness network uh, imaginable, and they promote it uh, all the time, and it produces lots of thick reports and thick analyses, and uh, they do lots of workshops around Europe. But at the end of the day, you don't see that translating into resources at the municipal level being allocated to uh, implement the good practices that are being identified. Uh, and so that's, again, it doesn't get a lot of attention in the in the how-to-fix-the-problem uh bucket. But over the long term, uh, a greater investment in prevention resources, I think, 
uh, has to be uh, made a priority. Uh, and if you, one just looks at um, the budgets of uh, in the European Commission for and the Development Commission, they've just announced a 1.8 billion euro fund to uh, deal with counter-radicalization and counter-migration in Africa. 1.8 billion euros. Uh, obviously, uh, um, a similar amount of money is, is, uh, is, is, is not being invested in counter-radicalization at home. So again, something to, to look at. And again, the United States is not necessarily a role model uh, in, this, in this one yet, uh, although hopefully uh, um, uh, it will become one. Uh, the second issue I think that needs attention is the, the gaps in the European Union's system, the shortcomings in the European Union architecture are not new. They've, they've long existed uh, in terms of the counterterrorism structures. Uh, and um, terrorist attacks since 9-11 in Europe are not new. They've been horrific attacks in numerous countries around the continent. We haven't seen the kinds of changes in the system, in the European architecture, that uh, I think a number of European countries have been advocating for, and certainly the United States, uh, when I was in, in the government, we were advocating for. Part of the reason we haven't seen that kind of change is because, in some sense, it's the lowest common denominator process in the, within the European Union. Uh, and so you have a number of countries um, you have uh, that, are, that are less willing to invest resources and political will in the kinds of reforms that uh, are so clearly needed. Um, Europe is not without its, the European Union is not without its counterterrorism-related stru structures. They exist. They just don't work. Uh, and so the question is, by creating new structures, uh, as has been advocated both, uh, I think, today and, and in various uh, newspapers over, over the last few days, um, the structures are great, but it has to come with political will. And uh, it it, it remains to be seen. I, I mean, I hope the political will be there to actually not only design improved structures, for example, uh, a counterterrorism agency that's been proposed, a uh, EU intelligence sharing mechanism that actually works, uh, but then it has to be implemented at the national level. And that, as illustrated by either, I, I forgot, Matt or Olivier, when only f uh, five countries are um, submitting names to the Europol database within Europe, and tw it means 23 aren't, um, is a new structure going to change? The, um, the way uh, European uh, governments operate. And part of the challenge here, and this, again, um, I think is, is uh, we'll, we're, we're going to see shifts in, just like we're seeing shifts in the Schengen system. I think we're going to see shifts in how Europe, European governments and institutions balance privacy and security concerns. Um, I think for too long uh, there has been uh, um, uh, uh, great emphasis placed on, uh, perhaps too much emphasis placed on, on privacy rights that has actually uh, interfered with the ability of European, some European governments and the European Union to provide security to its citizens. So I think that debate is a very fulsome one. It's an intra-European debate that has to happen. But I think uh, um, that's, the debate is so complex that it, that often slows down um, reform efforts because there are so many stakeholders within the European system that need to be heard, it just elongates any reform process. So that's another thing to, to keep an eye out for. Um, and then one thing that's always sort of, I've always uh, scratched my head about is um, the challenge that the U.S. government has in terms of dialoguing with the European Union on counterterrorism. And part of that challenge is a result of the uh, hydra-headed system within the European Union. So you have um, the 
Justice and Home Affairs uh, um, process with our Departments of, of Justice and uh, Homeland Security. You have a foreign, foreign affairs counterterrorism dialogue. You have a terrorist financing dialogue. You have a countering violent extremism dialogue with, with the United States. So it's like five or six dialogues, uh, none of which involve the EU counterterrorism coordinator because he, currently he, really doesn't have any authority. He has a, a, a grand title and he produces wonderful reports, but he has a limited mandate and no resources to actually uh, do anything. So these are all things that I think people have identified for, for the last uh, – shortcomings that have been identified for the last few years, but have really not – we haven't seen sufficient progress uh, uh, made there. Um, and then the – one two, – two more, two more points. The first is um, that as we look at the solutions or uh, improvements in, in, in counterterrorism in Europe, a lot of it's going to involve subnational uh, um, actors. A lot of it's going to involve empowering uh, municipalities, uh, local police forces, uh, and, and, and resourcing them uh, and the like. And again, uh, it's difficult at the national level for, for, the, for the U.S. government to have a real influence on how national governments in Europe engage with their subnational authorities. But I think what we're trying to do, what we were trying to do when I was in the government, is to encourage as many, for example, city-to-city -city exchanges between European cities and U.S. cities on issues around social cohesion, countering violent extremism, so that lessons learned um, in, in the United States could be shared uh, with cities in, in Europe and, and vice versa. One very uh, sort of relatively well-known example of this was an exchange between Columbus, Ohio, and the city of Vilvoorde in uh, Belgium. Vilvoorde is just outside of Brussels. And um, the Vilvoorde had, I think, the highest per capita number of uh, foreign fighters who went off to – for any city in, in, um, in, in Europe that went off to, um, to Iraq and Syria. And a group of uh, Vilvordian officials came over to Columbus and other cities in the U.S. and met with cities that had designed local countering violent extremism programs that involved police, uh, law uh, religious leaders, social workers, educators at the local level, and how they can all work together in engaging uh, individuals at risk and uh, creating, um, you know, preventing uh, folks from becoming further radicalized or going off to fight. And some of those lessons learned were then uh, implemented in Vilvorde, and the mayor apparently uh, cited a dramatic decrease in, in individuals leaving. I mean, the, the, the correlation, it's, it's, it's hard to prove as a direct correlation, but there's certainly more of that has to happen, and that's something I think uh, the U.S. government and, uh, is, trying to, uh, is, is trying to encourage. Um, and, then, and then the final point I would just make is that um, the, uh, is the tendency <coughs> to, um, in, in this context, to cite um, number of new security officials, a number of new police officers, uh, dollar figure investments in security as as sort of the answer to the problem uh, uh, in in response to these situations, and this are, are tougher laws. Uh, and what's happened um, as you sort of reflect back over the last f 15 years since 9/11 is um, in the years after 9/11, there was not one day when the U.S. wasn't being uh, reminded by our European friends about the need to uh, safeguard human rights as we um, deal with a, uh, an, an egregious uh, – response to an egregious attack on, on, our, on our homeland. 
Um, in every international fora, it was the Europeans who were the championing of this human rights agenda. In every European forum, it was the Europeans who were uh, sort of reminding the U.S. of, of not to over overreach. And we in the U.S., I think, learned our lessons about that uh, um, in terms of overreach, and we've made some adjustments and, and, and sort of implemented some lessons learned. But as I watch this from afar in Europe, the, the debate is completely different now. With Europe under, under understandably, under, you know, it's under attack, um, feeling mo directly threatened in a way they weren't perhaps right after 9-11. You've seen a significant decrease in the sort of the human rights rhetoric. Um, and uh, it, it, uh, it, it's just something to keep, keep an eye out for because I think there's a risk that uh, whether it's the sort of the emergency laws in, 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 in France that have been uh, enacted and I, I believe are, are being um, uh, incorporated into the Constitution now in terms of the ability to, uh, of the government to, to do that. I think there's a risk uh, in overreacting. Uh, and I think there is a way to balance uh, these concerns, uh, um, both rhetorically but also uh, practically. Um, and I think um, over time, uh, again, this, this is a debate that has to take, take place in Europe, but over time I think there will be a more of a, a balanced approach uh, so that we don't uh, actually um, create m more radicalized individuals as we try to prevent them from becoming radicalized. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.